In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Robin Hauser is our guest this week on Money Tales. Robin is an award-winning director of documentary films at Finish Line Features. In 2021, she released the documentary Savvy, which contemplates the historical, cultural, and societal norms around women and money and explores why it's critical for women to take an active role in managing personal finance. This film was inspired by Robin's personal experience of going through divorce after 24 years of marriage. As Robin tells us, she felt shame at that time for having taken her eyes off their personal finances. Simultaneously, she realized she was solely responsible for her own financial well-being. You might be familiar with Robin from her viral TEDx talk, The Likeability Dilemma for Women Leaders, where she delves into the dilemma between competence and likability faced by women in leadership roles detangling the unconscious beliefs and gendered thinking that distort what it means to be a good leader. The exploration of implicit gender and racial bias is a theme of Robin's other recent films, 2015's Code, Debugging the Gender Gap, and her film in 2018, Bias. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Robin hits on in this conversation. First, how being the primary caregiver is the most underpaid job on earth and is something society doesn't talk about. Robin discusses the feeling of caregivers having less power because they aren't bringing in the money. Second, the research she did for Savvy revealed that millennials, to a greater extent than any other generation, are abdicating financial decisions to someone else in their life, and usually that's the man. And third, Robin shares that while she has a great relationship with money now, she still has periods of stress and pressure around it. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Robin Hauser. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co host, Sandy. Hey, Cami. I am so excited. I'm working on a project that I wanted to tell you and our listeners about. This summer, a colleague of mine, Tierney Aldridge from the Denver Agency and I are going to be leading a discussion at a conference called Engaging Women, Bucking Traditional Gender Roles and Family Wealth. This is such an important topic. Getting our profession to continue to have conversations around it will help move the needle and make more women and more men comfortable talking about money together in a very productive way in the context of family wealth. What a perfect topic for our conversation today. Can't wait for you to share some of your insights afterwards. 
Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Robin Hauser. It's really wonderful to have you on Money Tales today. The pleasure is all mine. Would you do us the favor of introducing yourself? And we always like to hear a couple pivotal moments that really impacted you that made you the person you are today. I'm Robin Hauser. I am a mother. I am a documentary filmmaker and I'm a public speaker. And I'd like to say I'm a disruptor. And a few pivotal moments. Well, most relevant to this conversation, I'd say the most pivotal thing that happened to me was that I got divorced six years ago. For the first time in 24 years, I was solely responsible for my financial well being. And that was both incredibly empowering and terrifying, but it certainly has redefined me and who I am these last six years. Definitely. We're going to go deep into that. We typically like to get some backstory. Would you share with us? When you were growing up, how was money talked about in your home? I grew up in San Francisco. My father was a financial advisor, a money manager. So money was definitely a topic, but it went from, you do know that money doesn't grow on trees to absolutely whatever you want. But whatever I want meant work hard for it and you can get it. I had to work every summer from age 12. I was encouraged to find a job. I'll never forget the time my father said to me, so tomorrow's the first day of the summer. Go out and look for a job. Don't come home till you have one. So as much as I appreciate that, I do really believe that my work ethic to this day is because of the parenting that I grew up with. And I'm grateful to that. Sometimes it was a little bit harsh. I have to tell you this one story. I came home from babysitting one day. I was nine years old and I'd been babysitting the neighbors and I had a $10 bill and I was so excited. And I ran up the front steps and I waved my $10. And my father said, oh, let's do that. Come in here and have a seat. Sat down at the kitchen table. And he took out 10 ones from his wallet and he laid them in front of me. And he said, this we put aside for taxes. And he pulled out like $2. This you should give back because you didn't get here for nothing. So overhead. And I think he was meaning like rent and everything else. Of course, what? I was nine years old, but he pulled over a dollar. And then he said, no, this should go to your future and for savings. And he pulled over another dollar. The $1 for investing. And he said, the $6 he said here, this is what you can spend. That was a huge lesson. I mean, I was, of course, deflated. Great lesson, though. It was a great lesson. It has, without a doubt, left an impression on me. So when I think, wow, I just earned $100. No, I didn't really. I actually only earned $60. That's the way my mindset is now. How are you thinking about money as a young person as you're heading toward adulthood and thinking about what you're going to do with your life? Was money a focus? I was fortunate enough to know that if I was ever in dire straits, I could probably go to my parents and ask them for help financially. But because I was brought up in a household where I was taught to be financially responsible, it was really hard for me to go to them and ask for money. So I worked. I had my own money I could spend. I worked. I worked at my father's office when I was 12 and 13. I remember I was bartending before I was 21. They didn't know that, but <laughs> I had three jobs through college. I was tutoring French and I was working as a bartender. I have always had a job actually until I got married. And then I had sort of a side hustle, but it wasn't really bringing in a whole lot of money. Was that your plan to get married and move away from working? It wasn't. I was living in Europe. I was actually a stockbroker. I worked for Nomura Securities. And when I moved home to the Bay Area to get married, I wanted to get my Series 7. In fact, I contacted my father and I said, hey, I've been working in the stock market for the last uh, three and a half years and 
maybe I'd like to come work for you. And he said, I don't believe in nepotism. And so I was like, okay, well, scratch that. So now what can I do? I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to get a job still being a broker. I think together we decided that that probably wasn't the best way to raise a family with me having to get up at three in the morning and go to bed at 8.30. And on the West Coast, it's hard to work in the stock market for some people. I gave that up and I thought, well, maybe I'll get into photography, which was a hobby. But I was married to a very traditional person who really preferred that I be home to make sure that dinner was on the table and take care of the kids. And I too wanted to be around a lot for the kids. But looking back, I wished that I had kept a foot in the corporate world without a doubt. What took you to Europe? Was this coming out of college? Tell us a little bit about that story. Well, my senior year of high school, I lived in France with school year abroad. It sparked this wonderlust in me. And since then, I have had this fascination and adoration for Europe and Asia and anywhere just for traveling. So when I graduated from UC Berkeley, I took a traineeship with a company in Japan. And I lived in Japan for nine months. And then I came back to the Bay Area and I worked in the corporate offices of Williams-Sonoma. When I started getting a little antsy there, I thought I really want to do something international. So I applied to Thunderbird, which was the American Graduate School of International Management. At the time, it was in Glendale, Arizona, but it's the best and largest international business school around. I got into Thunderbird and I actually fell in love with a Norwegian man when I was there. And he graduated a semester before me. And the real truth is coming out, Cammie. <laughs> exactly. I followed a man. How cliche is that? But it turned out to be a great thing because we ended up living in Luxembourg because probably of my Japanese experience living in Japan, I got a job with Nomura Securities and I sold IPOs. I loved it. It was so much fun. And I really loved living in Europe. One of the conditions of my getting married was, okay, but some year we're going to come live in Europe again. And we did. When the kids were really little, the kids were five and six years old, we moved to Florence and lived in Florence, Italy for a year. So tell us about budgeting during this time. It's a lot of change, a lot of time on your own to figure this whole thing out. How did you figure it out? When I left for Japan, I had traveler's checks. I didn't even have a credit card. So this was 1986. I remember being on that airplane for what seems like 58 hours, and it was probably 24 hours, but forever, and thinking, okay, I've got to find a bank because I've got to deposit these traveler checks. I worked there, so I made money. I've always had a little bit of a scarcity mindset. I've always been very careful with money. I definitely am not a big spender unless I know that I've earned it and I can afford it, and then I get excited about spending money on something. Living in Europe, I made a really good salary, so I wasn't concerned. I also lived with somebody and we split things 50-50. Money was never an issue in that relationship when I lived in Luxembourg, which was really great. And I loved the fact that I made my own money and that I made good money. And that was a really big transition, a big shift for me, which I think a lot of women feel, getting married, giving up a career, but giving up that income and then suddenly having to almost ask permission to spend money because I didn't feel like the money was mine anymore. Say more about that, Robin, because that's something that we hear from clients oftentimes. It's a really weird situation. And I'm not saying this happens in all relationships. I'm hopeful that it's better with younger generations. But even if the primary breadwinner is incredibly generous and you have a joint checking account, Often the person that gave up working that isn't bringing in an income begins to feel like they need to ask permission to buy that coat or to decide to go to the spa for a day because you feel as though it's not really your money anymore, which is a mindset I think we need to change because if it's a decision in a union, in a couple, 
if it's a cohesive decision that one person is going to be the primary caregiver and the other person's going to be the breadwinner, both people should feel equally connected about whose money is in that checking account and who can spend. If you could talk to yourself back then, how would you encourage yourself to change that mindset? I think I would have, rather than feeling like I was on an allowance, that really wasn't even the situation, but rather than feeling like I had to justify every time I spent money or used the credit card on something, I would have been more open to have a discussion with my partner and to say, I need to feel as though, even though I'm not contributing to our income by being a mother by taking care of all the volunteer hours at the school that we're required to do, there should be almost a financial component to that. Like I need to feel like I have equal clout and that I get to have 50% of the decisions on what we do with our money. Because you were doing a lot of real work in those years, helping raise your children. Absolutely. And I think many people do. And this is what happens to the primary caregiver. It's the most underpaid job on earth. And yet it's something that we don't often talk about. I think that there's a lot of people out there who are the primary caregivers that feel it's not shame. It's just, we feel like we have less power, if you will, because we're not actually bringing in the money. I appreciate that you're emphasizing the importance of having these financial conversations, getting it all out in the open, sharing the perspectives that you have, hearing what your partner's perspectives are, and really working through that together. Communication is the key to all of this. And yet, talking about money is the number one or two most stressful conversation a couple can have. It is not easy to do. Tanya Rapley, who's in my film Savvy, which is about women and money. Great film, by the way. Everyone should watch it. Thank you. What Tanya says is when you're talking to your partner about money, it needs to be about timing, tact, and tone. And I think that's brilliant because I absolutely agree with her. You can't just wake up in the morning and say, we need to talk about money. And it can't be a conversation that's accusatory. You don't want to be angry. You need to be vulnerable and open and say, I want to be more involved in our financial decisions. I'd like to understand it more without feeling shame that I don't understand what an ETF is or where our money is, if we've got it in the 401k. I would like to really talk about this and try to find a way so that your partner's not defensive. Cheers to that. Let's talk a little bit about Savvy and your role as a documentary filmmaker. What was the goal for you to do this film? When I did get divorced, I felt shame, number one. For 24 years while I was married, I had taken my eye off of finances. I mean, I do believe in division and labor in relationships, but I had become somewhat complacent about personal finances and just about finances in general. Maybe that particular relationship wasn't designed to have a super open discussion about it, but there are many times that he said, let's sit down and talk about it, but it's hard to find the time. The kids need help with their homework or whatever. I was stuck with the reality of my financial situation suddenly. It made me really nervous. I was 50 years old. I didn't have a whole lot of savings and I wasn't sure how I was going to afford my future. I feel incredibly fortunate that I have a way to make money as a film director, as a public speaker. What it did is it made me realize how difficult this must be for many other women too. And one of the main things that I have to tell you about was that I didn't know who to turn to to talk about this. I had tried, I turned to a couple of friends that I've known for many, many, many years and said, how much money have you set aside for retirement? What are you investing in? And I have to tell you, 
it made people squirm. They were really uncomfortable about it because in our society, there's a taboo when it comes to talking about money. Even my dearest, closest friends were not comfortable speaking to me about money. Well, Robin, maybe you should find a financial advisor or I'm not really comfortable disclosing how much we're saving. I didn't need actual numbers, but kind of in some ways I did. Wow, we're 50. What if we live to age 90? How much do you think that's going to cost? Of course, everybody has a different cost of living, but these are questions I wanted to know. I didn't think I could afford a financial advisor. I thought you had to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank in order to even get a financial advisor. So these are things that I didn't understand that I needed help with. And here I am, a woman with her MBA, who grew up with a father who was a money manager. How is it possible that I was in this situation where I didn't know these things? I knew to pay off my credit card every month. I knew that I should probably be investing because that was the best way to grow your money rather than putting it under my mattress, the little that I had. But I needed help. I was motivated to make a film that would help other women and men, frankly, understand what issues we face when it comes to money. And I made a film that speaks to many different generations, whether you're in your 80s and recently widowed or somewhere in midlife and going through divorce, or frankly, whether you're just getting out of college and starting your first job and don't know whether you should be contributing to your 401k or what a credit score is and why it even matters. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of making the film? Were you learning about more of these money topics as you were making it? Well, as a documentarian, you always learn as you go along because you're never exactly sure what your subjects are going to say. Obviously, there were some pre-interviews. I knew what they were experts on. That's why they were in the film. But absolutely, I learned along the way. I mean, I wish I could go start all over again at age 50 now with the knowledge that I have. But what we did was we identified what are the main issues that women, and I did feel like I wanted to make this film predominantly for women. I'm glad to know now that the men in the audience are very appreciative of not just the content, but of the film and its quest to help their sisters, their mothers, their wives, and frankly, themselves when it comes to how do I talk about money. But we want to identify what are the main issues that women face and the women deal with. So credit card debt is a big one. Student loan debt is a big one. Financial fragility. What happens when you're living paycheck to paycheck or when the breadwinner in the family suddenly leaves or dies? What happens then? We wanted to discuss credit score. And do you understand truly how credit score works and how it can help you and how it can work against you? And then we wanted to look into investing. Why are so few women investing? Why are so few people of color investing? And why is it so important not to just squander your money or put it in a savings account, especially the last 10 years with savings interest rates being so low and looking at what is the possible rate of return when it comes to investing. So then what our mission was, was to go out and find not only the experts that talk about these things, but let's find really compelling personal stories, women that are willing to share their stories with us so that the audience can learn firsthand from somebody's story. I approached a few people with the idea of this film. I want to make a film about women and money. And I can tell you that more than a few people said to me, oh my God, this sounds really boring. Like, (laughs) how are you going to do that? If you've watched Savvy, it's anything but boring. We've got fabulous characters and great music and it really moves along and it's certainly not boring. But that's how we did it. And it's thanks to the amazing women that agreed to step forward and share their personal experiences with money that makes the film so personable. Any surprises along the way? Yes. I mean, I think the most incredible surprise for us was that if I said to you, most women count on the man in their life to handle long-term financial planning or money management, 
people would be like, well, yeah, that's what our grandmothers did. That's what our mothers did. Yeah, that's kind of what I did. But younger generations aren't doing that. Well, guess what? Millennials, to a greater extent than any other generation, are abdicating financial decisions to somebody else in their life. And usually that's the man. So why? What is it that makes a woman, the minute she gets married, say, hey, you do this. Oh, good. You handle the money. And is it cultural norms? Is that our society dictates that finance is male territory? There's some of that. Is it because the financial world was designed by men for men, not on purpose to exclude women, but that's just who was doing it at the time. When you're throwing a bunch of acronyms out there, ETFs and 401ks and SEPs and all this stuff. A lot of jargon. A lot of jargon. It can be really intimidating to people, very smart people who just haven't kept up with that. Talk about crypto. It's like, wow, half the women just shut out. There's a sense of ambient belonging that they don't belong. Those are good points. And you cover so many important topics in the film. One that you didn't name that I was really pleased to see in there was a conversation about financial abuse, something that's so prevalent that many people are not aware of. When you say financial abuse, people will tend to think of someone who's elderly, who's being taken advantage of, but it happens all the time in marriages. It does. It happens in marriages. It happens in relationships. And it happens to men too, not just women. But when somebody doesn't really have control of the reins of their personal finances, it's amazing to see how often they can be the victim of financial abuse. And yes, that was a very important part of the film. Robin, how soon after your divorce did you start making the film? It was several years later. I got divorced in 2016. At the time, my film Code Debugging the Gender Gap had come out, was on the film festival circuit. I was doing tons of private screenings and speaking gigs with that. From then, I moved to making a film called Bias, which is about unconscious bias, both gender and racial bias. So that occupied my time for a couple of years. Then this idea for Savvy was just burning in me. I had had enough time to know what it feels like to suddenly feel empowered by being in charge of my own money, knowing how much I have, knowing how much I was investing. You don't have to have a lot to know what you have and to feel good about it and to feel empowered just by the fact that if you want to spend a little bit of money, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. You can do that. So I engaged in really doing the research and putting together my team with producer Tierney Henderson in June of 2019. And that's when I just dug in and we finished. The world premiere was March of 2021. You are coming across very savvy with money and you've had a deep education through this work. And I appreciated you talking about feeling empowered. And it's such a great word because even I feel it. It's such a nice confidence and a relief and empowerment. How do you perceive your relationship with money today? I think I have a great relationship with money today. In that, I'm a little obsessive. I check my balances a lot. <laughs> I can check what's the stock market doing, and I try not to freak out about that. Luckily, I'm more of long-term. I would say my relationship with money, it's better than it was six years ago, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that I stress. I mean, I still worry. I work really hard. I feel pressure to make a new film. I work really hard to stay in the workforce, to hustle, because I know that I need to make more money because I don't want to be one of those horrible statistics of women who live in poverty in retirement. Women 65 and older are 80% more likely to live in poverty than men of the same age. That's crazy. And there are reasons for that when you think about it. First of all, we earn less than men. We earn 82 cents on the dollar. We spend more time out of the workforce because we care for children and elderly parents and relatives. So we have less social security and we live longer. 
So we have longer lives to afford with less money. So I think a lot of women stress about money and I understand why. As you were coming out of your divorce and going through this beautiful evolution toward your relationship with money and getting ready to make the film, what conversations were you having with your adult children at the time? What was their perspective on this work you were doing? I'm very close with my two adult children. My daughter's 28. My son is 26, almost 27. They've been really proud of me. They also are learning to have a good relationship with money. They both have jobs. And even when my son was going through transition between different jobs, yeah, he stressed about money, definitely. And I think the conversations that we were able to have, you know, knowing that he could always fall back, he has a college degree, that he always could get into a job, his quest for finding a job that he was actually in love with. And I remember a funny conversation when I said to him, gosh, that's funny. When I was your age, we just needed a job. Nobody expected to like their job. We lived for Fridays. We loved the weekends. We dreaded Sunday night because Monday was coming and we had to work again. But I love that that generation cares about their job. They care whether the job has the right values that they have in terms of how they're just treating the planet or treating people in general. So I love that that age group cares about how they're making their money because I think that that's a little bit different anyway that I remember my friends and I being when we got out of college. But a quick story, again, I made Savvy thinking that it was predominantly for women. I never want to marginalize my male audience because I hold them dear. The world premiere of the film was at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. Because of COVID, it was at a drive-in. So I'm with my boyfriend who's in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. My son is behind the driver's seat and my daughter's behind me. And about three quarters of the way through the film, I turn back to just check to see whether or not they are the kids awake. Are they still <laughs> watching this? And I turn back and my son's on his phone. And I playfully slapped him on the knee and I'm like, William, seriously? And he goes, Mom, I'm checking my credit score. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like the actionable takeaway. I mean, the film wasn't even finished and it motivated him to get on and say, God, I wonder what my credit score is. I better figure this out. I love that. And I love that the kids and I can talk about these things. We can talk about money. They know if they were ever in dire straits, they could come to me. And I think that they're lucky to have that security. They also knew that their father and I both had said that when you get out of college, you're on your own and you need to get a job and pay for yourself. So they both have really strong work ethics. But they also were fortunate enough to have the security to know that I'd probably give them my bottom dollar if they needed it. And maybe that's just what we do as parents. It's very important to state the expectations because when the expectations are discussed and they're out there, everyone knows and can ask questions and gain clarification when needed. So I'm really excited to hear that this film has opened up so many conversations for your family. They're taking action. I'm curious about those friends you were talking to after your divorce. What's been their reaction to the film? And assuming those relationships are still in place, has anything shifted there? They're still some of my dearest friends, and I never blamed them for not wanting to talk about specifics of money. Imagine you walking up to your best friend saying, how much does your husband make? And that's not exactly what I asked, but I was pushing a subject that is taboo. People aren't comfortable talking about money. It's not to say that I didn't have friends that I could talk money about. I have one in particular who's divorced as well, who was very open with me about how she handled her divorce, what she got out of her divorce, how much she has, what she stands to inherit, how much she thinks about money. She's also a working woman. 
I did a TED talk that actually just hit a million views called The Likeability Dilemma for Women Leaders. And in it, I talk a little bit about this idea where it's hard for women to even just talk about our accomplishments because we're perceived as boastful and as being conceited. And I know that I'm perceived that way at times because I'm a middle child and I've always felt like I have to compete and prove myself. I've learned in my adult life that I need to sort of tone it down. So I don't exactly go up to my friends and say, hey, did you like my film? Did you see that it premiered? They're on a mailing list probably, but I don't know that I've actually seeked that question because it would probably just seem like I was looking for compliments. I was hoping that they came back to you and said, this is so amazing. We should be talking about money more and that maybe there was a change in perspective on their end. Well, I will tell you that I definitely have heard that from many, many, many people, including friends. People love the scene in the film where I actually have a young couple that are talking about a prenup and people really do appreciate that, especially kids that are in their late 20s and early 30s because they're entering that stage of life where doesn't seem very romantic to talk about money and they're madly in love and they're thinking about marriage, but those are the conversations you have to have and that's the time to have it. I love a line that you just said that you're pushing a subject that is taboo. I would love to hear what are your plans for next to keep this really important subject and taboo topic going? Engaging in fabulous podcasts like this is definitely part of it. I'm also doing a lot of private screenings, private corporate screenings of the film, which is really fun to get that out there. I've just come from the Vero Beach Film Festival. I'm just finishing up on the film festival circuit. Eventually, the film will be up, hopefully, on some platform for people to see it. Unfortunately, as happens often in the documentary world, all the major platforms declined to purchase the film. So I'm in a situation where I need to monetize it and keep it on the private market for a while. But it's been incredibly well-received. I'm also talking at events, corporate conferences and stuff about the subject, about money and about why it's so important to talk about money. So I look forward to continuing on that circuit as well. Robin, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Probably with my financial planner, given the volatility of the stock market. I think everybody's a little spooked right now. And I know that these are long-term investments and not panic But it's always good to be reassured. For anybody out there that's a little bit concerned about the volatility of the market, I think it's a really good time to talk about money with the person that's helping you manage it, that's the expert. That's really an important conversation. Thanks for highlighting that we don't have to do this all our own and have the conversation with your trusted advisor is really important. We want to thank you for joining us on Money Tales. You provided so much information, so much great learning. I appreciated your vulnerability. When you talked about you have an MBA, you've got a lot of experience, but you came out of your marriage feeling that you hadn't kept up with your knowledge. You've done a great job of catching up and thanks for your work on Savvy. It's amazing. And we encourage anybody who can see it to watch it. Thanks for this opportunity to be on the show and to talk about this. I do think we all need to talk about money more often and feel comfortable doing so. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.